If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Well, it's time for another listener questions episode. I love doing these, and I'm committed to doing as many more of them as I can. And you're going to notice when I'm doing these that the microphone sounds a little bit different, and sometimes it sounds like I'm maybe even huffing and puffing. Because I like to do these out here at the secret compound. I just find that when I'm walking and talking and moving, I think better. It's always been that way when I'm sort of up and about walking and talking, my thoughts come more clearly versus being in the studio and recording something that's a little more static. So once again, I'm out here at the secret compound and we had a little wind out here the other night. And so there's some deadfall branches and limbs and wood around and I'm kind of cleaning it up and cleaning up some trails and chopping some firewood. And, and anyway, I had a list of listener questions and I thought while I'm out here, I'm just going to take this portable microphone that I can attach to my jacket here. And while I'm moving around, I'm going to answer some questions. Now, a couple things before I dive into them. And the first is I have a lot of people who ask about where the secret compound is. And, you know, my standard answer is if I, if I told you, then it, you know, wouldn't be a secret anymore. Ed and I have joked about if somebody were to be a generous enough sponsor to the podcast, then perhaps we would put a bag over their head at a grocery store five miles away and drive them out here. But so what I did do though, is I posted some pictures of the secret compound on the website. So if you would like to see what the secret compound looks like, and you would like to see my companion out here, Finnegan, you can go to the website, consideringcatholicism.com. And on the about page is a little bit about me. And there's a whole host of pictures now of the secret compound. And so if that's interesting to you, then go there and check it out. So listener questions today. If you have questions that you'd like to submit, then please do so. Email me at consideringcatholicism at gmail.com, or you can go to the website. And there's a couple of ways on the website that you can post a question. You can, you can leave a message on the website, and there's actually a little, it looks like a microphone button. If you push that, it leaves a voicemail, like, a, like an audio recording that I can hear. So if you'd rather do it that way. But would love to get your questions, and I'm committed to doing more of these. Okay, enough of all that. Let's dive into the questions. So the first was from a listener named Jacob. He said, my wife is Protestant and I'm a recent convert and it's been extremely difficult. She wants to raise our kids Protestant and I don't obviously. I pray for her daily, but she is not receptive to my arguments in the slightest. Probably her biggest qualm among others is that the Catholics that she knows and is aware of are not nearly as passionate and faithful as her Protestant church. Her church is very community-based and active. Would love some advice. Well, wow, Jacob, I can really relate to this question. You know, as a convert myself who spent you know, most of my adult life very active in the evangelical world, 
I, I got to be honest. There's times when I sort of, I don't know, I don't want to say miss it, but kind of miss it. There, there was a lot that was great about that faith subculture. As you say, there's the sort of a passion about it, an enthusiasm about the faith. And as you say, there's a sort of community-basedness. A, it's sort of centered on fellowship. And so people feel like they're in something together and they're united together and usually have a pastor that holds everybody together. And I, I don't know, it's the passion for the personal relationship with Christ, the enthusiasm about missions and evangelism, the nature of the fellowship events, whether it's Bible studies or, or community events or serving together or home groups, all that kind of stuff. There is just this really active and passionate culture in the evangelical world. And I can't deny that times I don't miss it. To be really honest, it's, it's very different than what you're going to encounter in a lot of Catholic parishes. So I think the first thing that I would say to Jacob and his wife is that you have to acknowledge where she's coming from. Her Protestant church probably is a very community-based fellowship, and it probably does have some very passionate people who are very enthusiastic about their faith, and it's probably a very welcoming place. Catholic subculture, when you're kind of coming to it from the outside, from the evangelical world, it can feel kind of cold and formal, and it looks as if people are just going through the motions, showing up to church, doing this and that, and it just lacks that sort of enthusiasm, I guess, that you would see in the evangelical world. And to deny that is just to deny reality. So the first thing I would say in terms of kind of bridging this gap is to acknowledge maybe her point. But then maybe let's look just past that point a bit. Because I think if we look more closely at it, we'll see some things that maybe aren't obvious at first glance. So the first thing I'd say is let's kind of put this comparison into some context, because I think that's not the whole story. First of all, I think it's only human nature when we're comparing one group to the next. And I don't care if it's you're comparing fans for your college football team versus the other one, or your family versus your in-law's family, or your school versus another school, your company versus another company. I, mean, I think one of the things that we all tend to do is to compare the best aspects or the best qualities of our team, of our group, to the worst qualities or teams of the other group. So in this instance, the evangelical might say, well, look at all the people who attend Bible studies and look at our fellowship dinners and look at all the missionaries that we have on our refrigerator magnets that we support or whatever that is. And then the evangelical says, well, look at these Catholics. They're dead and lifeless and half of them don't practice their faith and they have these kind of weird devotional practices and they're not enthusiastic. The flip side is that Catholics will say, well, look at our great saints. Look at our wonderful servant priests and religious brothers and sisters. And look at our, our cathedrals and our basilicas and the great Catholic art and all of this. And then compare it to some evangelical church in a strip mall with folding chairs and say, look at our church versus their church. Or, or look at our theology versus their theology. Whatever. So you, you, it's human nature to sort of take what you're proud of in your tradition and compare it to the worst elements of the other side. And that goes both ways, all right? 
So we have to get past that and we have to talk about apples to apples here. What is the essence of Catholicism versus the essence of evangelicalism and even how that faith is lived out? So one of the first things I guess I would point out is that Catholics, by requirement, count everybody who has been baptized or confirmed as a Catholic as a Catholic, regardless of whether they practice their faith or not. Whereas evangelicals only count those who are committed and attending as members of their church. So you can take a thousand Catholics who maybe they were baptized by parents who were marginal in terms of how they practice their faith. They maybe went through confirmation for whatever reasons. They didn't stick with their faith. They haven't been to Mass in 20 years or whatever. But they will be counted as Catholics. And the Catholic Church does that because we are sacramental in the way that we understand the faith. So, in other words, the sacraments of baptism and confirmation confer Catholicism to someone, even if they've turned their back on it like the prodigal son. On the flip side, evangelicals tend to only consider someone who is actively practicing their personal relationship with Jesus as a member of their church. So, like, I remember this in the evangelical church. You'd say, well, what percentage of our members show up or what percentage of our members tithe or whatever? And you say, well, like 90-something percent. Because if you don't show up for a year or two and if you don't practice tithing, you're simply dropped from the membership rolls. So... We could point as an evangelical church to 90-something percent of our people do X, Y, Z versus these Catholics over there where only 25% do X, Y, Z. So you're comparing apples to oranges because Catholics count everybody and evangelicals have a subset of people who are only the active. And it's really kind of comparing apples to oranges. I mean, if we really wanted to be fair, we would count all of the people running around out there who call themselves Christian but haven't been to church in 20 years. So maybe people who went to church when they were younger, or maybe people who went to church one or two times, or people who came down on the altar call at a Bible camp when they were in high school, and they haven't been practicing their faith in decades. Or we would look at all the people running around claiming to be Christians because they wear a cross. So we would look at everything from athletes to movie stars to hip-hop musicians or whatever who have some kind of a cross or a Jesus thing on them and claim that and we would count them. So I guess what I'm trying to say is if you really wanted to be apples to apples on this deal, you would take all of those Catholics, including all of those Catholics who are not practicing their faith, have walked away from the church, whatever, and you would compare them to all of those people in our society who broadly sort of claim Christianity or once claimed Christianity walked away. And I think if you do the comparison that way, apples to apples, you'll find that Catholics stand up pretty well in terms of longevity of practicing their faith, living it out, and everything else as a percentage of the total group, not compared to sort of the more select group of evangelicals. I hope that made sense. And I think that that's a good way to look at it. If you really wanted to be fair, you would take the people at your wife's evangelical church and you would stack them up to the super faithful Catholics that we have in our parish that don't miss a daily mass, that are part of the ministry every day, that volunteer, that give, that serve, that do 10,000 things in the parish, and you would kind of compare apples to apples on that. And I think when you do, you'd find that there's a ton of Catholics, just as many Catholics, that are just as passionate about their faith as there are evangelicals. If you sort of counted the chaff out 
And by the way, that's a biblical principle because that's the parable Jesus tells in a couple different formats. He says, you gather in the wheat or the harvest, and then you separate out the wheat from the chaff, right? So the kernels of wheat from all of the little husks that surround it. And the truth is, is that when you look at, in any given church, in any faith tradition, you're going to have the wheat and you're going to have the chaff. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, in the Catholic world, we tend to count the wheat and the chaff together. And also, there's statistically just more Catholics. There's like a billion Catholics worldwide. Even in the United States, there's whatever it is, 100 million people that call themselves Catholics versus whatever it is, 30 million people or 50 million people or something that call themselves evangelicals. So you're going to have more chaff than you are with evangelicals anyway. And you're going to have a lot of Catholics running around that may have been baptized 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago that aren't living out their faith. But you have a lot of people in our society that are ostensibly Christians as well that aren't living it out. So I would say if you're wrestling with this question about whether you raise your kids in the Catholic Church versus the evangelical church, I would look at it and say, hey, first of all, right out of the gate, there's just as many passionate committed Catholics as there are evangelicals, or maybe more. And here's another aspect, and I think this has to do with sort of a confirmation bias of how you define passionate, okay? So for evangelical Protestants, you define, I'll call it piety or spirituality, by having this personal relationship with Jesus, which is manifested in a, a sort of emotional conscious personal relationship like me and jesus i've accepted him in my heart as my personal lord and savior and i go to bible study because for evangelicals that's the standard of how you measure your spiritual life is are you committed to studying god's word and then there'll be some personal morality stuff and you're going to consider part of spirituality and passion to be being involved in small groups and things at your church so in other words, you make this sort of checklist. You have a sort of template for what you define spirituality is. Then you go and hold that template over the Catholic Church and say, well, there's not many people here that talk about their personal relationship with Jesus. And there's not that many people that go to Bible studies. And there's not that many people who go to fellowship events or small groups or whatever. Well, of course not, because that's your template for spirituality. And so the question then would be like, well, is that template biblical? Is that template for spirituality, that checklist, the right checklist? Let me give you an instance of something that came up for me recently. So I was traveling and I was visiting some Protestant friends and family for a few days. And while we were there, we went to their church on Sunday. I wanted to be gracious and go visit their church. It's a church that I used to attend on occasion when I was a Protestant. So I went along with them. And then they were talking about how much they couldn't wait till their, you know, Bible study this Wednesday or something. And they kind of went on. I think they were needling me a little bit at, now that I've become a Catholic about how great their Bible study was and how great their Bible study leader was. And it was Wednesday evening or whatever it was. And it was going to be so great, blah, 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 blah. Well, Monday morning I got up and I had checked on my phone where the local parish was. And I said, I, I'm heading out on Monday morning at nine o'clock. And they go, where are you going? I said, I'll be back in an hour. I'm going to daily mass. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Like, what do you mean? What's that? Like, I'm going to church. Well, why do you go to church on Monday? We well, go to church on, on Sunday. You don't need to keep going to church. You're a Catholic. 
trying to do works salvation or something, trying to earn your way to heaven. And I go, no, I want to go, I want to go to daily mass today and celebrate the mass and receive the Eucharist. And, and then every day that week I went to daily mass at the local parish and I went to confession while I was there. And so by the end of the week, they had had their Sunday service and their Bible study of which they were very proud. And they looked at me like I was crazy because I didn't go to Bible studies, but I went to church <laughs> every day that week. I went to daily mass and I went to confession. So the question that I had was at the end of the week, who had, I mean, was my spirituality deficient because I didn't go to a Bible study small group? When what I did was went and received the Eucharist and the sacraments and practiced confession. I mean, I, right? So I guess it's a different template. And I think that becomes the issue is that if you look at, at Catholics, they are very passionate and committed to other faith. Of course, the ones that are, like I said earlier, the apples to apples thing. If you look at practicing Catholics, I was at Mass yesterday and it was full. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people of very diverse backgrounds, all there practicing their faith. Now, did they stick around afterwards and have evangelical coffee donut time? Not so much, just not part of the culture. But they were absolutely committed to being there. And then I know that at our parish, like every single day of the week, like 60-something people come at 9 o'clock in the morning for daily Mass. And uh, when we do confessions on Wednesday night, with a line to the confessional is 50, 60 people. And I know that people at our church are praying the rosary. We have rosary prayer groups. We have adoration groups. We have people that are helping the poor. We have the Knights of Columbus groups. We have women of the word groups. We've got so much going on in our parish. And that doesn't even count the people that are, that are praying their private rosaries in their home. Let me give you this. Like, I used to laugh at Catholics. And I used to have this derogatory kind of term or whatever, or at least evangelicals did, about the, you drive through the countryside and you'd see people with the bathtub Mary, right? So they have the little shrine of Mary on their front lawn and it looks like she's standing in a bathtub. It's not really a bathtub, it's a shrine to keep the water off the statue. But you'd laugh at these people. Like, oh, look, they put a bathtub with Mary on their lawn. Like, how silly is that? They're not going to small group Bible studies. They're doing that. But what kind of sort of arrogance is it to say that only my small group Bible study or my small group at my evangelical church is the only way that you measure spiritual commitment and piety? Because I would suggest that those Catholics who have, uh, maybe they don't have missionaries on their refrigerator magnets, they have saints. And they pray their rosary every day. They don't have quiet time. They have the rosary. They attend daily mass and they go to confession and they live their faith out very passionately, but it is a different culture and a different template for how to live that. So Jacob, I guess what I would say is as you would dig into this with your wife, and I, I know it's very difficult to work through these issues in a marital way and you get the pressure with the kids, but hopefully there'll be a way that you can explore this over time. But I, I, well, I acknowledge where she's coming from, and I, and I acknowledge that she has a point in terms of how welcoming the evangelical world feels. I, I think that if you really examine it, that committed Catholics are just as or more committed to living out their faith than evangelicals. And I mean, that doesn't even count things like the commitments to Catholic schools, the commitment to go on pilgrimages, all the different things that Catholics do. I mean, you can't look at a committed Catholic 
who lives out their faith and not say that their entire life revolves around Jesus Christ and following him. Um, but the devotional practices and the sacramental practices are different. Okay. So that's one thing. But coming back to the original point about how do you resolve this or how do you raise your kids, I, I guess what I would say at the end of the day is that our faith and our choice of faith tradition, I hate, I really hate that word faith tradition. It makes it like seem really subjective, but our choice of church or, or sort of which Christian tradition or denomination you go down, that what we should be pursuing is the truth, right? So objectively, if you just wanted to say, well, which faith community practices its faith in the most attractive way, you might say, well, if you're really into families, the Mormons do an amazing job with families. Like, why wouldn't we all become Mormons? Well, because Mormonism is a heresy, right? It's a material heresy. It's not true. And I say that knowing a lot of Mormons, having lived at one point in a community with a lot of Mormons in them, and my neighbors were all wonderful people, really committed to their marriages and really committed to their kids. If I was going to choose my faith based on the subculture and what subculture I prefer, then I might go a lot of different ways. But at the end of the day, what we're supposed to be doing is seeking the truth. And as I've talked about many times on this podcast, I, I was really moved by G.K. Chesterton's great essay about why he became a Catholic, where he said, at the end of the day, it, it was about what was true. And it seemed to me that in 10,000 ways, Catholicism was just true. And then it becomes a matter of me sort of figuring out how I then live into that truth rather than finding a truth that, that sort of snuggles and enfolds, you know, my values and preferences. Now, look, <laughs> this is your marriage and you need to honor your wife. You need to love your wife. You guys have kids together. You need to do what's best for the kids. Obviously, I feel, and I think you, Jacob, feel that you want to raise your kids as Catholics, but you need to be very sensitive to your wife. I have a lot of friends who would like to convert to Catholicism, but their spouse is not quite there yet. And I, I know you've recently converted, but maybe patience and prayer is the thing. And I think that if there was one thing that maybe in some way, and I don't know how you do this, it's finding something to point to that you can both get excited about and become sort of a common attractive vision. Like, let me give you a for instance. My wife and I, for 20-something years, were on this road to what well, we didn't know where we were going, but it ended up here in the Catholic Church. But for a long, long time, we, we kept feeling this pull. But I remember when we took some trips, both in the U.S. and to Europe, and we visited some of these great cathedrals and basilicas. And you're so deeply moved. You can't walk into some of the great cathedrals and basilicas of the world, Catholic churches, and not be deeply and profoundly moved by the beauty and the, the, the sacredness of these spaces and what they sort of impart to you. And what that did is it put a bug in us that we began to say, I don't completely understand this. It sort of goes against all of our Calvinist fibers, but there's something here that's beautiful and we need, 
We need to follow this. We need to pursue this. We need to understand this. So I don't know what that is for you and your wife, Jacob, but I would really pray that in some way, shape, or form that you guys can come together and, and, and maybe study some things or visit some things or talk to some people where there would be this sort of shared common attraction to something and that the Holy Spirit would reveal that to you and that your wife would begin to understand, ah, this is truth, this is goodness, this is beauty, and I want to pursue it, even if it feels like an uphill and against the wind sort of battle against my evangelical subculture, it's something worth pursuing. So Jacob, I'm going to pray for you, and I hope all the other listeners to this podcast pray for you, that God somehow shows you that thing, whatever it is, that your wife will get excited about, and it will start those conversations. Okay, the second question I want to kind of take on today is from a listener who wrote in before, and I answered some of his questions in the last listener questions episode. And then he wrote back and he had a couple more, but I want to take on one of those today. His name is Chase, and I really love the dialogue, Chase, so keep it up. I just really love responding and dialoguing. And I know that there was a time for some of you listeners out there where the email wasn't working, we had to change domains and a whole bunch of things, and yeah. So if you got caught in that gap and I didn't respond to your emails, I'm really sorry. But rewrite me, uh, consideringcatholicism at gmail.com. So anyway, Chase writes back and he says, look, one of my other big hurdles standing in the way of me joining the church is accepting the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. He says, growing up in a non-denominational church where communion is just seen as a symbol, it's tough for me to wrap my head around it. He says, I understand that this is my body, this is my blood, which Jesus would have been able to directly turn into his flesh and blood, but how do we know that this is able to happen at the Mass? Who discovered that saying a specific prayer was able to consecrate the host? How do we know that the specific prayer that the priest says is the one that actually works? Where did the prayer start, and if Jesus didn't mention a consecrational prayer, how do we know that we're Irving doing the right thing? Okay. So, first of all, Chase, great question, and let me just summarize it, which is that even if you accept that there, there's this concept of the transubstantiation body blood, how did the Catholic Church discover the right formula to make sure that this consecration that transubstantiates it actually works? Like, how do you verify that, if I'm kind of understanding the question? So, to get into this, first of all, I... I did a bunch of episodes specifically about the miracle of the Eucharist, like a hundred episodes ago. So the first thing I would do, I'm going to try to take on your specific question here, but just for background, if you're interested in these things, go back and listen to episodes 53 through 57, episodes 53 through 57. And this is like episode 153. So you got like a hundred episodes ago. And then also episode 63, so 53 through 57 and 63, those episodes all have to do with this sort of explaining the Eucharist, transubstantiation, the miracle of consecration to a Protestant. So go back to that. And then let me take on your specific question here today, which is how did the Catholic Church, in a sense, discover the right formula? Right, and, and I guess behind that question is, it doesn't say in the Bible, do the, the priest must make the following motions and say the following words in the right way to sort of make this happen. Okay, I, I think 
the, the question is of in and of itself is sort of I think kind of a misunderstanding or at least puts maybe the cart before the horse. So the Catholic Church doesn't discover the sacraments by trial and error. So let's just go back and say when it comes to baptism or when it comes to any other thing that you do, it isn't like, well, we went out and and did an A-B test. We tried this and then we tried this and we tried this and we had a control group and we saw that if we practiced the sacrament this way, that we did a controlled study and, and a greater percentage of people got into heaven or something like that if we do it this way. I mean, that's sort of a misunderstanding of the process. Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom, the power to bind and loose, to St. Peter and the other apostles, and by extension to those that they, in a sense, delegate or hand that power down to. And they have power simply not because they have got the right technique, but because of their identity. And, and I think this is the super important point that I want to kind of camp on here for a second, is that the Catholic Church is not based on, again, perfecting, I don't know, techniques or formulas or processes and finding one that's superior to the other. It's based on identity. And that's the central claim of the church is that Jesus came not to create a Bible from which we would extract principles, from which we would then experiment with church models until we found what was most effective. When I was an evangelical pastor in the church growth movement, a lot of what we were doing was like, well, what's the most effective way to do ministry? With the notion that we could sort of experiment, we could look over time at other models, other countries, other times, and we could twist and tweak and everything else, and we could innovate until we found the thing that got the bestest out of the mostest, right? That got the greatest ROI, greatest return on investment, the greatest, brought in the greatest numbers of people. And then we'll just do that. Jesus called his apostles, and then of course he designated Peter as the leader. You are Peter upon this rock, I'll build my church, and so forth. And he created a church based on their person, their identity. And then of course the Holy Spirit was given to them, but the ministry that flows out of the church flows out of the identity of the apostles and their successors. And this doesn't just have to do with the formula for a community. It has to do with, uh, I mean, like everything about the difference between the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches, which is that when the Protestants say, well, how come the Catholics say or do or this or that? How do you, what do you do with altars and your liturgical practices and your this and your that? How do you sort of verify those? And the reality is that those simply flow down and out of the authority given to the apostles. So Jesus didn't say, hey, here's the formula for consecrating the Eucharist. Here's the formula for confession. Here's the formula for baptism. Here's the formula for confirmation. Here's the formula for marriage. Didn't do any of that. What he said is, I give you spiritual authority. This is my church. And in a sense, you are the apostolic leaders of that church. And you have the authority to bind and loose on heaven and earth. And I guess what I'm sort of backing my way into is, in a sense, by definition, the way the church has done it is the way it should be done, or the way the church has decided it should be done. Now, it isn't made up arbitrarily. So you can look at the formula for consecration, 
and it comes straight from like first corinthians and it comes from john and it comes from these things the, the the apostles and the early church fathers didn't go into some room somewhere with a whiteboard and just kind of make something up it's based on scripture it's based on apostolic tradition it's based on these things it's grounded in those but when the church says these are the formulas for how we're going to do the faith it has the power to make those decisions and it doesn't have to sort of justify those by appealing to a higher authority. I guess that's what this is. They don't have to go back and say, well, why do we ordain priests the way we ordain priests? Or why do we confirm people? Or why do we do this? Or why do we do that? Or why do we build church buildings the way we do? Or why do altars have to be consecrated? Or why this? Or why do that? Or what about the... It's based on the Bible. It flows down from the Bible. But the apostolic authority of the church has the power to take scripture and apostolic tradition weave those together and make pronouncements and at the end of the day being catholic means believing in that i believe in one holy catholic and apostolic church as the nicene creed says and that one holy catholic and apostolic church has power given to it to act in persona christi and here's another thing that that phrase in persona christi and all the sacraments what the priest is doing is acting in the person of Christ, in Persona Christi Latin. He's acting in the person of Jesus Christ. So when the priest hears your confession and absolves you, it isn't Father Bob doing that. It is Father Bob acting in Christ's office, not on his own authority. When Father Bob consecrates the Eucharist, Father Bob isn't on his own authority because he's learned the right rituals and techniques he is acting in the place of christ himself and offering the sacrifice so anyway go back and listen to those episodes and i hope this helps but like i said to to cut to the chase i chase i don't think it's so much about the church appealing to a higher or, or third party authority or trial and erring it as much as Peter and Paul and John and James and the rest of the apostles had authority to bring the kingdom about in the name of Jesus Christ. And the liturgies and the doctrines and the formulas that they implemented are, by definition, if you believe that they had that authority, the right way to do it. So I hope that helps.